0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of Johnny Gould's Jewish State from the studios at the Palace of Westminster where I was given the significant honour of representing Our Soldiers Speak in introducing Special Envoy Elan Carr at a Henry Jackson Society event hosted by Henley MP John Howell. It took place in a packed committee room, you've seen the kind on TV. It's where the 1922 committee announced who should be Conservative Prime Minister every so often. Ilan Carr stirred the audience discussing his White House role in combating anti-Semitism, and as you'll hear, he defines it in its 21st century appearance, he discusses its link to anti-Zionism, and gives the history of actual Zionism, which he says doesn't start in the mid-19th century in Middle Europe, but goes way back, way back, to Parshat Lech A portion of the Torah that's read in synagogue on the third Shabbos after the festival of Simchas Torah the third uh, Sabbath after Simchat Torah Johnny Gould's Jewish state is taking me to new places meeting new dynamic people and I'm grateful to Sergeant Benjamin Anthony for affording me this privilege I need to invite Johnny Gould it's a great pleasure to invite Johnny Gould uh, for uh, our soldier's speak who has brought Alan over and he wants to say a few words about that. Thank you, John. Uh, My name is uh, Johnny Gould. Uh, I am the UK liaison for Our Soldiers Speak. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here at the Palace of Westminster today. Just a little bit of background on Our Soldiers Speak. It's an organisation which was founded following the uh, Lebanon War in uh, 2006, the Second Lebanon War, and it's dedicated to bringing about high-level policy briefings ...on the State of Israel from the perspectives of security, strategy, diplomacy, uh, politics, media, cyber, high-tech and more. Adding a bit of value there, ladies and gentlemen. OSS is the sole organisation globally through which the IDF, the Israel Defence Forces, the Israel National Police... ...and the Israel Ministry of Justice Dispatch uh, Uniformed Senior Ranked Members... Um, of um, their organisations to uh, campuses around the world, through the English-speaking world, as well as to US military academies. Uh, The OSS is not an advocacy organisation, but it promotes dialogue about an understanding of Israel's strategic position within the Middle East and the international uh, community. Three key initiatives, OSS Campus, uh, that's the vehicle through which the IDF and the police dispatch senior officers to campuses. OSS Elite, which uh, convenes uh, policy and strategy briefings for members of the U.S. Senate uh, and the U.S. Congress by senior-ranked members of the IDF and police. And it does the same for legislators and policy influence uh, throughout the Western world as well. And uh, finally, OSS Israel, uh, because plain and simply we recognise that Israel is... Its own finest ambassador. The Israel Law and Policy Tour brings select graduate and doctoral students committed to careers in public service to Israel um, for an academically rich immersion into the law and policy considerations of the country. Delegates uh, join us from more than 10 different countries uh, right across the world and every year, ensuring a, a truly global um, set of people. Uh, And the Israel Strategy and Policy Tour is specifically tailored for cadets in U.S. military academies, and it allows everyone to analyse the state of Israel in a fashion that will inform future officers about Israel and its place uh, among the nations, its relationship also with the USA. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you
1: very much. Well, uh, MP Howell, thank you so much for uh, for hosting us. Uh, thank you to the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you to uh, OSS, Our Soldiers Speak. Two amazing organizations that are doing uh, incredible and uh, who have uh, great moral clarity in everything they do. We very much appreciate uh, your your moral leadership on the urgent issues of our day. Um, I want to thank all of you for, on my account, having braved the rain which I understand is rare here in London. And thank you, for, uh, thank you for making it out nonetheless. It's a full house, and I'm uh, very grateful, and I appreciate it. Uh, it is a uh, special privilege and honor for me to make what is now my second visit to uh, address uh, an audience here in Parliament in these august halls that provide no question throughout history, that have provided the inspiration for every democracy and for every deliberative body in every democracy, including uh, my own Congress. And so to come here to the mothership where, uh, where it all started is, uh, is a special honor and a special privilege. So thank you for having me. Thank you for opening uh, your chambers to us, and, uh, and uh, it really is a pleasure and an honor. Uh, I'm privileged to bring you greetings from the President of the United States and from Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo, my boss, uh, who as part of this administration are champions of the U.S.-U.K. alliance and uh, and will be champions of the U.S.-U.K. alliance. Please know that as uh, your parliament engages in vexing and difficult questions, uh, please know that the United States of America has your back. Uh, Vice President Pence recently made a very strong statement to that effect and, uh, and uh, that has not changed. Uh, we stand with you, and, uh, and we have the back of our friends here in Britain. Uh, in addition to being champions of the US-UK uh, relationship, President Trump and Vice President Pence and Secretary Pompeo and everyone in the administration uh, have distinguished themselves as being committed in unprecedented fashion to the fight against anti-Semitism, to the protection of the Jewish people throughout the world, and to support for the State of Israel. Even by the elevated standards of the most philo-Semitic country in the history of the world, the United States, even by those elevated standards, this administration is simply unprecedented. And it is my great privilege uh, to serve as part of that team. Nine months ago, the President and the Secretary appointed me uh, to serve as America's leading diplomat in the fight against anti-Semitism, to advise the administration on U.S. policy and to direct U.S. policy on this issue. And I take this role at a time of shocking, shocking developments in this arena throughout the world. Anti-Semitism on the rise everywhere, regardless of geography, regardless of context, regardless of country. We see anti-Semitism on the rise here in Europe. In Europe, where we are approaching the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Hitler once infamously said in the close among his last days that in in 200 years the world will forget about all of this and go back to killing Jews. And we see now that He perhaps overestimated the extent to which this ancient hatred can be kept at bay. Less than 75 years, and Jews are being attacked on the streets of Europe. There have been murders of Jews in the streets of Europe, Jewish property vandalized, certainly in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe. We see in my own country Jews murdered in synagogues because they are Jewish. The internet throughout the world and in every language boiling over with anti-Semitic hatred. The UN continues to be the UN. In the Middle East, we see allied countries. I'm not talking about Iran. Countries allied with the United States and the United Kingdom. Whose textbooks could have come from Germany in the 1930s indoctrinating Jew hatred in children. And then, of course, we have the elites in Europe and in the United States expressing what is often known as the new anti-Semitism in so unvarnished and unapologetic a way. The campuses, here and in my country, becoming, in many cases, cesspools of anti-Semitic activity. And we have to ask, what is going on? And more importantly, what can we do about it? So let me tell you what we're doing about it. At the direction of the President, my administ- I and, and our administration is simultaneously confronting all three sources of anti-Semitism. And it's critical to remember that there are three disparate sources of anti-Semitism, none of which may be ignored. One is the anti-Semitism of the ethnic supremacist far-right, the other is the anti-Semitism of the Israel-hating radical left, and the third is the anti-Semitism of militant Islam. Far-right, far-left, and militant Islam. Just think about it. Three groups that should hate each other more than they hate anything else on earth. And yet they find themselves strangely united by their hatred of the Jewish people. And united, I would argue, by one other thing as well, and that is the fundamental incompatibility of their values with everything on which the United States, the United Kingdom, and so many other countries were built. Freedom and democracy, godliness, mankind's inexorable march toward a better world and a more just humanity. All of this at odds, in a deep way, with the visions of the far right, the far left, and radical Islam. My very first trip as envoy, in fact, I was on a plane at Dulles airport taxiing when Secretary Pompeo announced my appointments. When I say my first trip, very first trip. My first trip was to Eastern and Central Europe, where I confronted the so-called problem of the far right. We see in Eastern and Central Europe organizations and groups and political parties, not in government, it's very important to point out, not in government, but groups that, that engage in rhetoric that we thought Europe had long since graduated from. We see them having torch-lit marches at night, red banners with stark black symbols on them, eerily reminiscent, intentionally reminiscent of Nazis. And Nazi parties, these are in fact neo-Nazi parties. These are groups that are not in government and not part of coalitions. However, they hold sway. Some of them have seats in parliament. And some of them aren't being condemned and marginalized to the extent that they need to be. That was my very first trip. I also spoke at the funeral of Lori Kay, Zichrona Livracha, who was murdered in synagogue on Shabbat of Pesach because she was a Jew. Six months to the day that 11 (coughs) Jews were murdered in Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue. And this in the United States, where Jews are safer than they are anywhere else, even in the United States. This coming Sunday, I'm going to visit the synagogue in Halle. This Sunday will be the one-year anniversary of the murders in Pittsburgh. And I look forward to standing with the Jewish community of Hale and expressing the unqualified support of the United States for the safety of the Jewish people and for the fight against anti-Semitism. And so we are confronting vigorously the problem and the venom of the far right. Let me tell you about militant Islam. Next month, I will be traveling to the Gulf where I will be having candid conversations with our allies. My candid conversations will simply be that isn't it time? Isn't it time to move on from the ancient ossified hatreds that we see all throughout the Arab world? If these countries are serious about the Iranian threat, why is it? that some of these countries are doing Iran's work for Iran. The chief trafficker of anti-Semitism in the world today is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And for Iran, it is a tool of political control. Just as Nazi anti-Semitism, imported in the Arab world through the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, was a tool of Nazi political control. I'll be telling Arabs that this is a foreign import And any Arab country that traffics in anti-Semitism is doing the work of the mullahs of Iran, whose efforts are to control the Arab world. This is, by the way, what I said in Al Jazeera in an interview, which was in Arabic, more important. Al Jazeera Arabic, a very different network. And I said that very thing. Why would any Arab country do the work of Iran? I think we have more opportunity to move the needle on this problem in the Middle East today than ever before. And moving the needle on anti-Semitism in the Arab world would be a game changer. Because what happens in the Middle East does not stay in the Middle East. The ideologies that are preached in schools, in madrasas, in mosques, in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, directly affects the European street and the US college campus. And so if we go to the source, and if we can change the dynamic there at the source, it could change the world. It won't be easy. It'll be slow going. There's already movement and there's already progress. The Bahrainis are incredibly courageous. The Moroccans are incredibly courageous. Some other countries need work. And I'm going to be doing that work starting next month. Now let me tell you about the third category. This is the anti-Semitism of the radical left. I want to spend some time talking about this because unlike the anti-Semitism of the ethnic supremacist right or of radical militant Islam, on this third source of anti-Semitism, we see widespread confusion. Suddenly, those people who are very clear And who understand the threat from neo Nazis and from Islamic terrorists suddenly begin to hand wring and equivocate when it comes to the anti Semitism that is clothed in the fig leaf of Israel hatred. And that's what it is. This is a fig leaf. It disguises itself as criticism of a country or in the expression of legitimate policy disputes which, by the way, can be expressed legitimately toward any country in the world. Anyone can disagree with the policies of any country. But that's not what this is about. And if we do not address this third source of anti-Semitism, if we're not clear about the danger that this represents, we will be leaving one-third of the tumor untreated, and tumors don't go away by themselves. And so this is incredibly important. It is critical that all of us understand what this so-called new antisemitism is. And I'm here to tell you that there is nothing new about this so-called new antisemitism. In fact, every single classic manifestation of antisemitism is duplicated precisely with the so-called new antisemitism. Let's go down the list. Blood libels, it's as old as anti-Semitism itself. Blood libels of one kind or another, including the most notorious one, the Jews bake matzah with the blood of Christian children, a medieval calumny. Well, blood libels then, blood libels now. This time directed at the Jew, not in the community, but the Jew among the countries. The state of Israel as a genocidal regime, an apartheid regime. Even that Israel, as I've heard said and seen written, published, infects Palestinian children with viruses. No different. Blood libels then, blood libels now. How about the rhetoric? Same rhetoric. A Jewish leader in Europe recently was called a dirty Zionist. As though the substitution of a word might confuse us as to what's really being said. My own grandfather in Iraq was arrested one morning. My mother was a young girl. She remembers he had shaving cream on his face. There was a knock at the door. He was dragged away, paraded through the streets in leg irons and then thrown in prison. You see, after the Holocaust, it no longer became acceptable to throw Jews in prison without at least some semblance of due process. And so he had a trial. During the trial, he was accused of being a Zionist. What does that mean? He had no connections to the fledgling state of Israel. So what that meant is, according to the charge sheet, is that he was distributing Zionist material at a rally in Baghdad. Let's put aside, for a moment, the question of whether that should be a crime anyway. But that was what, what he was accused of. Well, the only problem is, he wasn't in Baghdad that day. And when his case was called, he said to the judge, Your Honor, there must be some mistake. I was in Basra that day, working with the British great uh, Anglophile, my grandfather, by the way, spoke perfect British English. He was very proud of that. And he was proud to call himself a a subject of the crown. He said, I was working in Basra at the port with British officers. I can bring witnesses to prove I wasn't in Baghdad that day. The judge said, Zionist, you're challenging the accusations against you. Two extra years in prison for you. It's not about being Zionist. The rhetoric, Zionist means Jew. And dirty Zionist means dirty Jew. Same rhetoric then, same rhetoric now, nothing new. How about isolation, delegitimization? As old as anti-Semitism itself, the Jew in the community is the outsider, different, not legitimate. Threatening our ethnic purity or our religious beliefs, undermining our society. So too, the Jew among the countries, its legitimacy questioned, its existence said to be a racist endeavor. Delegitimization then, delegitimization now, nothing new. Also the same are economic boycotts. Economic boycotts aren't new. We've all seen the pictures of brown shirts in front of shops in Germany, Kauft nicht bei Juden. Well, what is the BDS movement if not that? Don't buy from the Jew. And I want to publicly thank, as I've done on television, the German Bundestag, for having the courage to vote that BDS is anti-Semitism. And not only they voted that BDS is anti-Semitism, but they said it is reminiscent of the Juden boycotts of the 1930s. And they ought to know. Boycotts then, boycotts now. You know what else is the same? The same obsessive, compulsive nature of this hatred. Just as throughout history, Anti-Semitism was an all-consuming, ferocious, insane, obsessive hatred. So too is the new anti-Semitism. A student at a premier university, one of the best in the world, gave me an answer sheet to his math class. I still have a copy. It says, you know, the derivative of so-and-so is such-and-such, the integral of such-and-such is so-and-so. And then it says, another day in the occupied territory, Zionist forces murdering children. Then it goes back to math. The kid who gave this to me with a voice reflecting utter exhaustion said, in math class, I can't even escape this? Even in math? That's right. That's right, even in math. Because like the old antisemitism, the so-called new antisemitism is just as insane in the target of its hatred, just as obsessive, just as focused. And lastly, lastly, And this is a very important point. What is similar between the new and the old antisemitism? In fact, what has always been an integral feature of antisemitism throughout the ages is blaming the Jew for the antisemitism. Do you know even Kristallnacht was blamed on something a Jew did? And by the way, not fictional. No blood in Matzah this time. An actual event. Kristallnacht was blamed as a reaction to the assassination of a German diplomat by a Jewish kid, Herschel Greenspan. But just because the Nazis claim that that's why Kristallnacht happened, are we so gullible as to believe it? Are we confused on this point? Or do we understand clearly and unequivocally that Kristallnacht was part of Nazi Germany's strategy of eradicating the Jewish people? Well, so too should we we be confused when the new anti-Semites blame their vitriol and venom and their anti-Semitic actions on something Israel does, fictionally or actually. A building project here, a military operation there, something Prime Minister Netanyahu said, something Prime Minister Netanyahu didn't say but should have said. Are we so gullible as to believe that that's why there is anti-Semitism, because of the victim, because of the target, and yet people do this all the time. They fall for it. Well, it's just criticism. It's not just criticism, and it's not just BB. <coughs> Before BB, it was just as ferocious. Labor prime ministers, Likud prime ministers, and it'll be just as ferocious after. Because this has nothing to do with what Israel does or what Israel says. It has everything to do with what Israel is. Just like the old antisemitism. Let me tell you about the effects of this. Because unlike the antisemitism of the far right and militant Islam, in Western societies this new antisemitism has somehow come into widespread acceptance. You call yourself an anti-Semite, they'll run you out of town. You call yourself an anti-Zionist, they'll give you tenure. They might even elect you to something. A recent survey of university students shows that Jewish university students in the United States are less supportive of Israel today than they have ever been, more inclined to identify with Israel's enemies than ever. And the crisis—it is a crisis. That's what it's called. The crisis in the evangelical Christian community in the United States is that we're losing our young people to Israel. A pastor just said to me, "I wasn't even speaking on this particular issue." Pastor raised his hand and said, "I have to interrupt you. I want to tell you what's going on in our community. We raise our kids to be pro-Israel as a matter of faith. For us, it's theology. And then we send them to university." And they come back changed. I recently spoke at a Yom Ha'atzma'ut rally in Los Angeles, and an evangelical Christian kid ran up to me after. He said, I loved your speech, I'm here to volunteer. I love Israel. I said to me, tell me something. Is it true? Is it true what I'm hearing, that young evangelicals are less supportive of Israel? He said to me, oh, it's, it's, it's it's all around us. Of course it's true. I said, Matthew, why is that? You know what he said to me? Because we also go to college. We also hear it all the time. It's a 24-7 indoctrination against the Jewish people in the state of Israel. And yes, even in math class. Now, if Jews and evangelicals are being turned, what does that mean for everyone else? Those just aren't two random communities. Jews and evangelicals, that's the base That is the base of philo-Semitism and pro-Israel support. And lest anyone think that these effects might be short-lived or limited to that other world, the world of the campus, not our world. Let me tell you about the most chilling meeting I've had in the last nine months of my work. That meeting was with one of your MPs, an MP who walked out of the Labour Party because this MP said, I will not sit at the same table with anti-Semites. I met with this MP in Washington, D.C., and this MP said to me, this disaster that we have in England all started on the campuses. We did nothing because they were only students, and then it moved into the Labour Party. But We did nothing because it was only the far left fringe. And today they won, we lost, and I no longer have a political party that I can call home. I'm quoting the MP, by the way, not my words, the MP's words. I want you to know my hair stood on it. What a clarion warning for the UK, for the United States, and for every decent, loving country in the world. I was told by a student at Oxford that the price of being Jewish at Oxford University, one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world, The price of being a Jewish student and going unmolested as a Jewish student is to divorce oneself completely from Israel. The JSOC apparently does not touch the subject of Israel, does not talk about Zionism. And therefore, they're okay. They can exist as Jewish students. But would anyone say that it is okay To exact a price from a Jew that they cannot wear a kippah ever, or can't keep kosher, or can't keep Shabbat, the fact that many Jews don't keep kosher and don't keep Shabbat is entirely irrelevant. That price, exacting that price, is anti-Semitism, pure and simple. So too is exacting the price that a Jew divorce himself or herself from a core feature of Jewish identity and that's what Zionism is. Zionism didn't start in 1948. Zionism didn't spring out of the first Zionist Congress. Zionism was born in Parashat Lech Lecha when God says to Abraham go forth to a land that I will show you. Zionism reached its consummation in the Exodus when Moses led the Jewish people to the promised land. And Zionism found one of its clearest expressions on the banks of the rivers of Babylon. When the Jewish exiles wept, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. That's what Zionism is. It's not a political movement. It's a core feature of Jewish identity. Like Shabbat and like Kashrut and like like Jewish history. Like Rosh Hashanah. All of it is part of Jewish identity. And no Jew, no Jew may be forced to make that choice. I want to leave you with some good news. There is some. I'm often asked, I'm often asked what has been my biggest surprise on this job. Let me tell you what my biggest surprise is. My biggest surprise is to discover happily the number of leaders, the number of decent people in the world who genuinely get it, who are champions of this cause. Not only allies, champions of this cause. Some of them are Jewish, most of them. The vast majority are not. These are leaders at all levels. Some are prime ministers, some are ministers, Many parliamentarians, mayors, anti-Semitism coordinators. And what they understand to be the case is that anti-Semitism isn't only about Jews. And the fight against anti-Semitism isn't only about protecting Jews. At every opportunity and every time he talks about it, President Trump calls anti-Semitism a vile poison. He always refers to the vile poison of anti-Semitism. He did that in a State of the Union address. He just did that two weeks ago at a a, a Rosh Hashanah call with Jewish leaders in the United States. It is a vile poison because anti-Semitism is history's greatest barometer of human suffering. And every society that has imbibed this poison has rotted to its core and produced human misery at a level that defies description. That lesson doesn't need to be taught here in Europe. That's what anti-Semitism is. And these great champions of this cause get it. And they, with passion and moral clarity, stand up and speak, and they say, what kind of country do we want our kids to inherit? What kind of continent? What kind of Europe? What kind of world? Because nothing less than that is at stake here. We're talking about the future of our children and grandchildren, non-Jewish children and grandchildren who risk inheriting a world that is broken and violent and evil. Because where there is is anti-Semitism, there is violence and injustice and evil for everybody. And these leaders are incredible advocates. I have the great honor and privilege of calling great leaders like John Mann and Eric Pickles, my colleagues, my partners, and my friends, Also, Katarina von Schnurbein, the anti-Semitism coordinator for the EU. Felix Klein of Germany. Georg Georgiev, deputy foreign minister of Bulgaria. And the list goes on and on and on. Incredible, incredible people who are champions of this cause. If we didn't have friends like that, I'd be worried. But I'm not. I'm actually optimistic. I'm optimistic that we can make real gains in this ancient fight against this ancient evil. As I walked here to Parliament, um, and I did walk a little bit, um, I passed the statue of Churchill uh, right across the street. And I had to think about the stark contrast between Churchill and the enemy he faced and defeated in Europe. An enemy of notorious historical evil and an enemy that made anti-Semitism a core feature of his ideology and his military campaign. Well, how did Churchill defeat Hitler? This was not only a great national leader and a great military leader, but Winston Churchill was also famous for his philo-Semitism, a leader that loved the Jewish people and that believed that The Jews had a right to self-determination in the Jewish ancient homeland. That's the legacy. That's the legacy of this great country. And that's the legacy of these great halls. And so now the United Kingdom has a choice. A real choice. And I'm not talking about Brexit. What kind of future do we want? What kind of vision do we have? What kind of honor do we want to bring to Churchill, Or what kind of dishonor might we allow? I'm optimistic also that good Brits will march on the right path to a future of justice and decency and godliness so that we, all of us, can bequeath to our children the better world that they deserve. Thank you so much.